I'm definitely leaving. I'm leave. I'm gonna move in. I'm gonna move from San Francisco probably in April or May to L.A. The only rational place to move. I have mixed feelings about that. About me moving or L.A. About L.A. I mean, I want you to John more than yes. anything. I want you to be happy. Yeah, but I will say that the strength of L.A. is that. People have mixed feelings about it. And I've come to I've come to so on this tour on Twitter I wrote I was in Philly for three yep. days. I fell in love with it. You it's fell in great. love with Philly. I fell in love with it. It's great. Philly's a great city. And so I wrote on Twitter, you should move to Philadelphia. Yeah, I saw that. And it, so just read the comment thread. Mm. People are like, hard pass. Fuck no. <laughs> no, thank you. And I'm like – and I was like, that's the strength of Philly, that yeah. it's divisive and that you just cannot be loved by – everyone loves San Francisco. It sucks. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like – But Philly is – I mean as far as like major American cities go is I would say relative – I don't know if underground is the right word, but I but I sort of understand that and that you know it's it's got like a little bit of the blue cars. Yeah. I don't know if there's any standards by which Los Angeles is ne- necessarily an underrated city. Well, people – so there's been a kind of a one-sided hatred in yeah. San Francisco towards LA forever. I'm from Northern so, California. Yeah, so you know you yeah. know it. It's I ingrained. I harbor so, that in my soul. So when I t- tell people that I want to move to LA and San Francisco, it's often like, yeah. oh – but what about the traffic? It's like literally like you, we live in a fucking Blade Runner dystopia up here. It's tough. And like tr- you think traffic's any different in any major city in America? There's no public transportation anywhere. Seattle's fucked. Like Boston's fucked. Yeah. DC's fucked. Like, no, I was in Seattle a week ago and it was awful. San Francisco is a tough one for me because I'm from an hour where, outside where, of – Where are you from? I'm from Fremont. It's great. I'm from outside of San Francisco and, and I love San Francisco and it's my yeah. city and I still – every time I you know drive over the Bay Bridge, I still get those like, like tangles and – in my stomach and there are so many wonderful aspects of it but it's it's so difficult and it's just it's not getting any better i don't really have complicated feelings about it i just think Mm. that 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 places people bands directors they they peak they fade they might peak again do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. we we just don't know but i i think that maybe you know if if something is is like uh disintegrating for like a decade that you yeah. should you should bail. You I, think know rot, I, mean? I think rotting is a word maybe you're looking for. And yes. It seems like for, in order for a city to make a big comeback, it takes a big fall, right? Yeah. Look at Pit, have, have you been to Pittsburgh on the store? I was there five days. It's incredible. Pittsburgh's a wonderful it's, it's city. It's a great city. Pittsburgh went through some really tough times. Yeah. And in order for San Francisco to become livable again, something really terrible well, I, is I, going to have to happen. I think you're looking at like a, um, you know, you're looking at a hundred years of like, climate change mass yeah. migration <laughs> like yeah. like you're looking at like where united states of america doesn't necessarily exist as we know it sure now. <laughs> I, and i don't know if san francisco is necessarily going to to last through the climate change disaster yes. it's just right one it's, it's also it's like a seven by seven peninsula yeah. filled with rich people i mean it's like you know yeah. you, you you it would be like a pretty cool horror movie whatever clears that thing out you know what i mean like it is sort of a night of the living dead situation at, at this point right now and it's and, and and the thing that I think is hard to describe to people who haven't been to the city recently is is how much those two worlds are intermingled with yes. one another. Yeah. Most of the time when I'm there, we stay you know right next to the Tenderloin, like right on Mission and Market. You know the uh, yes. the Park 77 uh, yes, right there, of the course. giant like Hilton yes. Hotel, yeah. which is just it's like right on the cusp of the yes. Tenderloin. Yeah. And you walk down one block and you have Twitter HQ, yeah. and then you walk a block away and there are people like. Defecating yes. on the street. Yes, that's where they want us to be. Do yeah. you know what I mean? That's that's like they either want you to to win 
or to be punished for losing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they want to like – like it's just a war. Remember the war on poverty? Yeah, like, yeah. Like in the 60s, like it's – no, no. It's war it's on like, poor it's like the, people. It's like the king like in the motorcade like riding through the streets, like surveying all of the less fortunate. It's pretty jarring. Where are you from? I'm from Florida. I'm from okay. rural uh, north central Florida, like Gainesville, Suwannee River, okay. Williston, Jacksonville. Gainesville's I w- pretty – Hip these days, right? It, it's hip. Now. Yeah, I think I, I, I have it, a friend it, who opened up a, a, a comics college there. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds yeah. I think that. I mean, I grew up in like I I wouldn't. I mean, I grew up in a in a kind of a in, in a culture that wouldn't have recognized okay. what was interesting about Gainesville. You Tom know? Petty. Well, I mean, I that was yes, that was, but that was after the fact. You know what I'm I mean? Like, that I'm was like, like I'm thinking like, my my two like cultural signposts there, other than Tom's uh, comics college, are uh, you got Tom Petty, and then you have Less Than Jake comes around at yeah, some point. Ab- absolutely, you're probably like kind yeah. of right right in the middle. Of those I'm two. right in the middle. Absolutely. If you get it's 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 like people who grow up in like rural rural Texas. Like sure. if you survive that, you're probably a weird person, and you're probably you know like an idiosyncratic, interesting art person. You're like where you're from, and I said Fremont, and then you're like great, and I'm like yeah, I, I sure, I guess. I mean like I I think you might have been humoring me just a little bit there, no, but at the same point, it's I have friends from two, two of my engineers yeah. are from from Fremont, I, and and also Fremont's been training. You know, it's like the with Tesla and with all of the battery store with the, I mean, there's sure. a lot of like really interesting tech stuff that's I, I happening. Just, in Fremont I just now. don't know, like, un- unless you're from like a cultural metropolis, I, I, most people don't love where they're from. Yes, yes. I, Al- although yeah. being from the South is kind of, in- insofar as Florida is the South, it's kind of its own weird. Yes, and, and when I go back to Florida, I certainly have. I mean, I think that also you don't really have any distance as to what it means to grow. I mean, I did grow up unsupervised in the country, which mm-hmm. I that made me really in a different type of person and yeah. I, and I and I that that I wouldn't my my child I was really lucky because I I grew up with access to like a fishing boat when I was 5 years old where I could go out on the Swanee River mm-hmm. and I was totally unsupervised I mean I could disappear and do whatever I wanted I grew up with a single mom and we were my brother and I were both very independent and so I I carried that for better for worse yeah. I carried that with me throughout my life and it made me incredibly anti-authoritarian and it also made me willful and able to deal with my own stuff. Was it a musical family at all? No, I don't remember hearing any music in the house until my babysitter, when I was nine years old, she brought the original cast recording of uh, The Who's Tommy. And she put on, I remember she put on side one and I remember opening up the gatefold and I remember it sounding like the most unknowable cacophonous madness and I was totally in love with my babysitter. So I I connected The Who and this r- ridiculous cast recording yeah. of The Who's Done. And like – and but I connected all of that in with like a discovery that was like really profound at the time. So I and, – and it was almost like the those the, the people that grow up in like youth groups or like evangelical households where they, they – the, the mu- music is delayed yeah. for them. So when they discover it, they go – Fucking crazy! Have you have you ever seen those um th- those videos where somebody gets like a cochlea implant for the first time who has it who's never been able to hear? I have seen those. Yes, they're and overwhelming. Yes, their their brain is trying to sort of process yes. this sense that they never had. Yes, I mean you. I mean, granted, even at this point in my life, being very familiar with the who, the who Tommy's still yeah. kind of a a tough one to wrap my brain around. Yes, yes. I mean, that's a hard entry point into popular music. Yes, and it was. I think that. 
the con- the connection too was that this person that I really really liked yeah. was showing me something that was like compli- you know much more complicated than anything that I had ever like experienced mm-hmm. and I thought that like a better world a better life I mean I grew up in a chaotic emotionally chaotic like household and this was a better place my babysitter and the who and <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah. everything that she brought into the house was like better I mean, than... <laughs> again again maybe there's some irony to the who you know to 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 tommy being that first yes. um entry yeah, it's, into it's, a better an world album about it's... being abused you know, yeah. sexually abused and like yeah you know, it's emotionally abused and like yeah she brings us in from outside you identify maybe not with it initially but with her because she's a, yes. a cool person and kind of yes. a beacon of coolness yes. in your life what, what's the next step from there I started taking piano lessons and then that was important because – I mean I think that I expressed interest in music yeah. and then I was offered piano lessons as – you know, and they were they're like small town – you know, I, I, I have no idea what I was playing. But I was learning theory without knowing it. I would play like – I mean recitals, mm-hmm. quote unquote. I mean there were probably a bunch of moronic sure. kids pounding yeah, the yeah, piano. Yeah. Yeah, but at least people were in the audience and – do you know what I mean? There was a performative aspect to it and it – late years later when I was 12 and I picked up a guitar, it was much easier mm-hmm. for me to – and then it was – Jamie White, my first girlfriend buying me, she bought me two records. She bought me – and, and I'm, I think back like what a fucking baller for no, knowing this shit. She bought me Led Zeppelin presents. She was 12 years old and she bought me David Bowie Low. Hmm. Uh, re- two records that, that yeah. I still connect to. Both weird kind of you know a late period Deep, Led Zeppelin late and peri- then yeah. the uh, Berlin era of yes. Bowie. Yes, yeah. They made sense to you again? No, no nothing, yeah. it did not make sense. None was, of those three records make any sense out of context. Well, I was in I was in the MFA in, in Boston two days ago and I was in the Egypt room and I'm looking at all these like hieroglyphics mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm thinking – it's beautiful. It's it's physically, emotionally beautiful yeah. to me. There is a there's a narrative. There is you know they're warding off death or they're they're explaining some kind of like passage through death in these these like complicated mm-hmm. pictorial, you know, essays. But I don't really understand it. But it's still beautiful. So I think that music. I mean, that's one of the powers of music is that you you can be listening to music that's more advanced than what you're really capable of understanding. And I found this when I when I first started getting interested in classical music, and I, and I got interested in music that was just too harmonically complicated for me to understand at the time, and sometimes still is. I mean, there are there are there are moves in like a like your Mahler nine, yeah. right, or your yeah. like later Richard Strauss, yeah. or that are like. A musicologist could could give mm-hmm. you a couple paragraphs and you'd be like, holy shit, I would never think about music in that way. So it's, it can be like an, a, a, a non-intellectual reaction that I think is one of the most beautiful things about music. There's this – do you know this this app called Radio with like five O's? No, no. It's really interesting. It's like this, this – I think it's this French couple curates this – um, kind of playlist where you just like pick a country and you pick a decade, mm. and then they play like so it's pretty obscure. You can't yeah. fast forward, you can't skip a song. It's like a radio station, as if you're driving in a fucking like Range Rover in in Kenya in 1978. You know what I mean? Like that's the vibe. And so it's a it's a it's a incredibly interesting yeah. way to like slow down. And reset what you listen to and how you feel about music because you will listen to some music that you don't understand. I think that sometimes like intellectualizing 
art is a pro- is a problem. You know, I was in San Francisco about a month ago, and I went to the Magritte exhibit. Yeah, and I have the same problem every time I go to a art gallery or museum, where I'm not sure how long I'm supposed to stand in front yes. of the paintings. Yes. And I'm not really sure what the emotional impact is yes. supposed to be. Yeah, you know, and and then a lot of times it sort of I come away from it like, oh, I I like the colors. Yes, yes, because I just I don't have yeah. the training, I don't yes. have the context to. I feel really appropriately appreciate those works yes. of art. Yes, the interesting thing is that I completely understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I once dated someone who was getting an MFA at Columbia. They were incredibly incredibly smart, thoughtful, and knowledgeable, but also very present. So we would go to galleries together, and she would talk about Agnes Martin, or mm. she would talk about um, uh, Edward uh, Edward Hopper or Albers or, like, yeah. you know, like Franz Klein, like whoever. And it was like a, having a, a navigator. Do you know what I mean? Like you, because you actually you need an entrance. You really do. You have to have a curator. You have to have a like a, a guide because it's it's a complicated, historically rich and and like layered world. I find it's difficult for me to talk about music with people and not Fuck sound yeah. like a mansplaining asshole. Yes, you know, yes. To, to be patient about yeah. it and to not feel like I'm trying to push something on somebody. Yeah. But it's it was an incredible experience for me because just having someone say to you like, think about the mar- margins of this painting. Mm. Like look at where the frame and the yeah. edge of the canvas, how this is exposed and like what's on the edge of the canvas and why is it exposed? So like, literally it, just telling you where to look at the yes. painting. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. OK. Like I was in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in like maybe a week ago. My – Clearly, touring is for yeah. me going to, to our, our your, your new favorite city. Yes, and I went to the there's the Duchamp piece at Don Donnet, mm-hmm. and and there were there was someone that was just talking about the piece, yeah. and I did some time with Duchamp. I, I I I like they have the large glass there. It's like it's he was part of my life. You know, I I thought I've thought about him for hours at a time, but to have someone explain. They were explaining how they serviced – you know, there's a, a waterfall that has a mm. has a light bulb in it. It's an actual yeah, it's waterfall? An actual, it's, yeah, it's yeah. an actual – well, it's a fake I – mean, it's, it, it's, it's like a beer sign waterfall. Okay, you know what okay. I mean? With like a scrolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so th- this guy was just talking about how they physically – it's basically an installation. It's mm. almost like a like, – like like He's a, talking about maintenance. Yeah, he's talking about maintaining an artwork yeah. and it was fascinating. He's fascinating. talking about changing light bulbs in this yeah. thing that, that the Duchamp really like built with like, you know, over 15 years and it was fascinating. As somebody who like so much of what you do is is just the, the sort of the day-to-day in the studio for yes. these great records. Yes. I mean, I'm sure that you can probably relate to that more than just about anyone else. Not that you're a maintenance man, but yeah. maybe to oh, some I'm degree a ma- you are. I'm a maintenance yeah. man. I, I think about brooms and mop heads <laughs> and I mean, I got it dialed yeah. up, man. I, I mean, I have... So many fuses yeah. and light bulbs and uh, and parts and I, I mean if you run a studio – listen, the cool thing about running a studio is that it's some working class bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it will keep you – there's no studio owner keeps you that's humble. pompous. I'm just yeah. telling you right now. Yeah. Like, you're like a, a building supervisor. Mm-hmm. You, are a, you are a handler of very damaged egos and you are also a handler of psychopaths, sociopaths and narcissists. But mostly incredibly charming, willful artists. Do you think the head of Abbey Road is like plunging toilets? Well, Abbey Road to me, I mean, there's two types of, well, there's 
three types of studios. There's like studios that are actually like what I would call working class studios, mm. non-family money, profitable studios. They may be barely profitable, but they're yeah. profitable studios and they were somewhat built by hand by some crazy motherfuckers. You're describing yourself. Yes. And there's many studios like that. I played I, – so I'm on a house show tour right now and I'm – I play so many recording studios. Mm. It's amazing. I, I played one in Boston. I played I played um, home recording studios. No, like real studios. Okay. So it's like I, I, it's really common that I end up playing not in a house but in a recording studio. And so I see them all the time. They exist. They're functional. They're necessary. And then there's like the trust fund studios mm. where it's like everything's just – it's you know like they have scavellini cabinetry and it's like who in the fuck would – you know what I mean? Like this ki- this kitchen is like – who in the, the metrics don't work? You, know you mean, what I mean sort of like, like somebody's pet project? Yeah, or, so rich yeah. persons they're incinerating yeah. their family trust. You know what I mean? Because it's like a or or what's his name? JD in the straight shot. You know about this guy? Oh yeah, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Because uh, Sharpling's obsessed with him. Oh yeah, I, I know about JD in the straight shot. Yeah, oh, I think all of our pop culture references probably come from the same place. Yes, of course. Like yes, I know about this clown. Yeah. So yes, a version of JD of of, him, of this idiot like. And there's so many of those studios. Yeah. And then the third category are these kind of like legendary, yeah. you know, grandfathered in culturally. Electric uh, Lady it, Land. Yes. Yeah. In, in port- and I call them coffee mug studios because they sell fucking coffee mugs, which makes me totally nuts. You know what I mean? Like in other words. Because there's a gift shop. There's a tour- the, they're yeah. just tourist traps. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they may or may not be functional. They may have stripped out the the important consoles that they should have had. They probably don't run tape anymore. You know what I mean? They've, they've kind of removed themselves. Like if you go to abbeyroad.com. Mm. They should be disseminating information about recording instead of like selling you tchotchkes. Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's like that's how we're going to monetize this. You know what I mean? It just it feels it feels dismal. So I'm sure they're sort of dealing with the same strain that everyone else is, and in, in that it's just it's fucking hard to make money in music at this point. And they figured out some sort of angle. It's yeah, but, a crass one, but but let's let's if we're going to just serve, let's hold on to our dignity. That's yeah. that's I think that's my <laughs> motto. Like, let's 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 just hold yeah. on to our dignity. While, you know, like, because otherwise, if you're going to sell out. Then let's really sell out. Do you know what I mean? If you're going to cash out, then let's like let's do it on a grand scale. Let's let's just burn let's burn it down. You know what I mean? Because like you know clearing a you know six pounds twenty for a, a mug. Yeah. And do you know what I mean? And scarring your 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 legacy. Maybe I'm the only person that's sensitive about that. I'm I'm probably not. The last time we sort of sat down and did an interview like this, it's been a number of years, and I think it was not too long after the third eye blind incident. Yes. Yes. And that's a pretty good example of, I think, sort of like somebody coming in, not checking their ego at the door, yes. not necessarily know what they're getting themselves into. A band like Spoon, for example. Yes. They come in in your studio. They're they're a huge world famous band, but they know exactly what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. And, and I would say that like most bands are incredible. Most bands that we know of and that we admire their music. I would say that the batting average for those bands being incredibly pleasant to yeah. deal with is shockingly high. There's just something that happened in music where I can't remember the last time that I had an unpleasant interaction in the studio with a band. The bands that that I've had a little bit of trouble with are the the baby bands that are running a little hot. You know what I mean? Like they're in a hurry. They're I don't and and it's not a big deal, but you you'll get you'll you might see an impatience and maybe an entitlement that's born out of nervousness that if they don't yeah. come with 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 confidence that they have to they'll project be shot something. Down. Yeah, they've got to project something. Yeah. So I I don't I'm never offended by that stuff. Sometimes you need a little bit of that stuff to start, but. 
I, the last time I was in a room with a band that I didn't like really admire or like, I can't remember. Mm. It's just – it's amazing. Musicians need each other. They're highly socialized. They're funny as hell. They – they kind of know the de- it's there's nothing to stab each other over do you know what i mean like they need each other to 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 keep rolling down the road and to climb up the you know to go 1 millimeter up the fucking ladder you need a thousand friends and and you need bands you need associates compatriots you need everyone to do that I don't know how it is for novelists or painters, you know, people that are more in a, it's more solitary and yeah. it's, maybe it's more like, you know, you think that like there's only a certain amount of like, well, they're on FSG. What, what, what publishing house am I going to get on? You know what I mean? Like bands don't even have that. They don't mm. even give a fuck who's on a label and who isn't, who's playing, you know, who's touring with whom they don't care. They, they're, they're happy to, and maybe because the stakes are lower or maybe because it's, it feels like end times for music. I, I don't know. But like, all I know is that in any backstage area I've been, whether it's been in like Johnny Brenda's or it's the Fillmore or it's like the Greek theater or it's a it's a fucking art gallery. Mm. It's a pleasant hang. And and that's pretty I'm I'm really happy that I ended up in this little sector of, of the arts community because it, it it's it's real I mean there's a lot of things to complain about, but bands are Spoon's lovely. There's so many bands that are just funny as hell and yeah. and talk about like weird they've they've had to navigate so many bizarre you know places. Do you, do you know what I mean? That they they they're they're like the least judgmental, the most open minded people that you'll meet. I mean, you talk to musicians all the time. Mm-hmm. One of the conversations that we have a lot is this idea of of momentum and sort of the acknowledgement that you get to a certain point in your career, and the, the venues aren't going to get bigger oh, yeah. from there. Yeah, and at a certain point, pretty much regardless of who you are, say for maybe you know point oh percent, yeah. They're, at, at a certain point, they're going to start to get smaller. Oh, yeah, you're in a hang glider, man. And yeah, that thing's yeah. going to go down. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of like mental arithmetic that bands have to do a lot. And, I, and I've noticed, I mean, I've been interviewing musicians for, you know, since college for years and years and years. I don't know if it's that I've gotten better at asking questions. I don't know, but I don't know if it's that people are more frank or I don't know if this is just something that they're considering more often, but it does seem like pretty much to a person, everyone I ask, every time they put out a record, it feels like it might be their last track. Yes, absolutely. And and fewer people are coming out. They don't know if it's just because the fans are getting older yeah. or fewer people are, are coming out to shows. You know, the humbleness and everything else is great, but there is there is some something very existentially uh, depressing about this idea of the best bands in the world not knowing if they're going to be able to sustain at that level. Yes, yes. And, I mean, that's – it's huge because I think about this problem and of clearly the studio deals with this problem all the time because – a control room of a studio is like it's like a therapist's office, mm. man. You hear like mm-hmm. some crazy like psychic distress, you know what I mean? And all, like all these stories about bands breaking up, it always seems to happen in the studio oh, too, yes. right? Oh, yeah. That's where the shit hits the fan. Yes, because you're 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 up against too. You're like as you're completing something that you know what's next, which is judgment, which is judgment from the label, yeah. from the the crew, the booking yeah. agent, from from press from and and the dissolution of the press like there's like there's the whole machine i was just hanging out with a pup my friend who's an ex-publicist earlier today and like that the whole machine has been dismantled and like you know one thing that bands don't really consider which i consider all the time because it's mostly all i listen to is is, is rap you know like like indie rock is like is fading into something that's like bluegrass i was talking to my other friend who used to work with like be a consultant with spotify and, mm. and he was saying like that like spotify considers like 
anything under Imagine Dragons to be like a statistical anomaly yeah. and therefore totally irrelevant. Yeah. You know, and 60% of streams on Spotify are rap. And so it's like we're – you know, like indie rock is, is like – I mean God bless indie rock. I, I, it changed my life. Like yeah. all of these fucking weirdo bands that don't even – there's it's, – it's a catch-all phrase that means nothing and that's why that subgenre has lasted for so long because it means nothing. It can, it, can, it can hold Destroyer. It can hold Death Grips. You know, it can, it can, it can hold uh, Samantha Crane. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's a yowler. Like it can, yeah. it, it can contain anything and no one knows what it fucking means. Yeah. You know what I mean? Fans aging out. I don't know what it is. But but I think that bands do know now that the aggregate audience is it's it's shrinking like every day it's 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 smaller and it's like fucking intense you know what I mean like if you didn't have the studio if you didn't have this sort of day to day thing that you're working on within the industry and we're around musicians all the time do you think that you would still have a career as a musician that's a great question I on many levels. I think that I have become incredibly zen over the years about – so for instance, my landlord two years ago in San Francisco. So I have two landlords that I rent a lot of space. I, I rent over 10,000 square feet of commercial real estate and those are month-to-month leases. They're in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. which is fucking crazy, yeah. right? I mean like yeah. I've seen it all. Like I'm on a month-to-month lease in two cities in the Bay Area and my landlords are fantastic. I love them. Without them, I wouldn't – the studios would have died a long time ago because ever, all of my peers got pushed out unless mm. they were rich. So my San Francisco landlord who lives in New York and who's coming to see me play tonight, he told me two years ago. He's like, hey, we're going to sell the building. It's on the market and I just want you to know that you need to like start looking for another place. No offense. I'm pretty like – I'm pretty unemotional about all this stuff. When it when it happened, I was like, oh, okay, cool. All right, so I'll just do something else. Like it it didn't for a minute just cause for a living. Not only didn't really? cause me any distress, it kind of made me super excited. For instance, four years ago, I had a near death experience on the eighty, and I decided to quit touring. And it was we were in our van, we were driving really fast. It wasn't our fault. There was a car parked on the eighty, parked yeah. not with its hazards on, not coasting but parked like insane like i really don't know what they were doing maybe their car seized up but we almost like ran into them driving really fast and when we got out of the way we were lucky that there was no truck or car there was a very narrow median we would have pushed another car across the any crazy scenario could happen i survived that if you tour a lot you've you've seen it all you've mm-hmm. you've you've seen crazy shit you've I, I saw a trucker getting pulled out of a jackknife truck and he was like clearly not living I, you know you you see highway death and you're like you know what I, i'm good i toured a lot I had a great run yeah. i just made a decision internally i'm going to stop touring and it was there was no stress it was made me really happy if you made the decision in that scenario to, to close the studio down you would be Letting people down. Yes. And you probably to some degree might, you know, feel like you were a failure or it had failed. But if, if external forces yes. were causing you to yes. do that, yes. then it's sort yes, of not that's on exactly you. it. And and of course we we have six full time employees. Mm. Of course yeah. that would cause me crazy distress because first off, I've stolen them from other cities. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've spent years working on them to get to wear them down to become producers and engineers. But my I guess my position is that if if something happens 
it's I'm totally okay with accepting it. It's weird. It's like the near yeah. misses that fuck me up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's like if something is going to happen, like when I decided to 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 stop touring, it it didn't cause me any stress at all. Would people be like, "Hey, are you gonna?" tour again i was like no i'm good like it didn't it didn't really bother me i mean i was i lost my prescription glasses on this tour that caused me so much more stress than than like yeah. not making records or touring like like it because because somehow the the um if i'm very very open to the idea of radically changing my life at any point and and that there being some meaningful narrative in there whether there is or not i always think that amazing things will happen if you're forced to completely change what you're doing i mean that's part of the reason why i'm moving that way you wouldn't feel if for whatever reason whether personal or external you just weren't making music anymore you wouldn't feel like you were missing a, a part of yourself that's a good question because so it's in been 20- a few years since the last record yes so in 2014 I stopped touring and I stopped making records and I started producing records. So I probably really from 2014 until now, I probably produced somewhere around 80 to 100 records. So I was in the studio and that was an amazing period for me because I was working with a lot of bands that I loved. And I was also working in a way that was so much more intense than me just dipping in and out of production. Oakland, the Oakland studio was Mm -hmm. finished. I was working in Oakland a lot. It was a really, really interesting Almost transitional moment for me. Can production feel creative in the same way that actually making, writing, and well, performing music is creative? It's a good. That's a good question. In, in in some in the beginning, it felt better because I would finish a record with someone. Let's say it was like twenty days. You'd be in the studio for twenty days. Boom! You'd master the record. You get really close. You get actually sometimes creepily close, like you're a nanny and you're like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you're like you care more about their career yeah. than they do sometimes. You yeah. know what I mean? Like because you can really fall in love with what a band's doing, you know. And But then there was that beautiful moment that they were the ones that were going to have to drive it around the country. Do you know what I mean? And it was great. Like I don't – I'm not – you're not I'm a salesman. Not, yes. And I didn't have to like work it and I didn't have to go to fucking like KCRW and I didn't have to do K, – K, you know, I didn't have to wake up at 545 yeah. and, and load in at KUT. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like I just – I was like exempt from the promotional shit that had like driven me crazy. But you re- – I mean you realize like I mean, you have to, especially sort of having been out of it now and somebody again who feels a generally zen approach to life that how privileged you are that – Going to fucking KCRW is something that like sounds like a a job or a sort of yes. pain in the ass that day. For every KCRW, sure. there are fifty other crazy promo things that you get roped into but doing. Even, that. But even beyond that, again, I mean, are you able to now having some sort of distance from it? I mean, obviously you're touring now, but you're not as nose to the grindstone yes. as you were in, yes. in in those days. Are you sort of able to appreciate that that was kind of a luxury, yes. as terrible oh, yeah. as it yes. could have been? Some yes. days, I was a good worker. Like I. I I lived to please my crew. You know, I was on Dead Oceans. I was yeah. on Barsook for eight years. Yeah. I was on Dead, o- Dead Oceans for three years. The Secretly crew was huge for me. The Barsook crew was huge for me. My manager, Adam Voith, I was his first client. I started with him at Decorporated, went to Billions. Like, I, it was – I lived to make them happy. I had great publicists. I had – like, Adam eventually ended up managing me. I, I had, like, unbelievable bandmates, and I would do anything to fulfill – like the the potential and promise like there i don't think there's anyone in my crew that would say that like oh he didn't like 
meet our expectations because yeah. it just I yeah. like worked yeah. so yeah. hard. You know what I mean? Like I felt good about all that stuff. But when I think when you do you start out four tracking in a basement and it's this is a c- super common story, but you it is a very, very pure and like distilled uh, connection with creativity. And in the end, you are churning with guilt about not getting bigger, not paying your drummer and tour manager more money, mm-hmm. not pleasing your badass booking agent who now books Mumford and Sons <laughs> and Bon Iver. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like so you like it becomes contaminated by capitalism on a certain level. Yeah. And they're not they're not enforcing that, but that's just you were you're operating in that world. On a very basic level, though, it's easier to struggle and to starve and to work, you know, 15, 16 hours a day when you're in your early 20s. Yes. And also when you're – again, when, when, the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the plane is going up, when you're going yeah. up, man, when you – my goal was to grow 5 percent every year. In 2012, that's when my numbers started going down. And now what I had been touring since two, two, 2001 – so you were looking that closely at the books? Oh, yeah. I, I knew. Yeah. yeah, I paid. Yeah. What numbers are you talking about specifically? Sales numbers were so mm. complicated because of scanning and because the resurgence of vinyl, the death of CDs. You're, you're confused on that side. Sure. And Streaming. streams come up. Everything yeah. is just like flaring up and dying and flaring up. You're really looking for like paid numbers on a tour. Like what, your, average, your average at the door in Europe. And here. And also, do you have the juice? You know, I toured uh, Japan three times. I toured Australia. Like, like, you know the day that your power is receding as a band. Like, every band knows. It's like, a, it's like fucking death is knocking on your door. I mean, there's ebbs and flows, certainly. Yeah, but you know when – it's almost like you, you have exerted so much – spiritual psychic energy yeah. to get where you are and you just like you just feel fucking tapped out man and it's like it doesn't mean that you you, you can't take a couple years off and come back but when you're when you're rolling you can't take a couple years off for me i had a drummer a keyboard player on payroll like some i remember taking a tour just so i could keep them paid that, that I didn't even want to do to do, you know. But don't, like, I mean, don't you feel like tapped out and sort of emotionally dead after every record? I mean, I've talked to all these artists about that sort of like postpartum depression they have oh, and how yeah. they want to be done with it. I yes. mean, there's a certain degree of that every time you push something out the door. Yeah, but there's a, but there's a point too where that that cycle where you were you're touring, you're you're you release a record, and then you're touring, 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 and then when you come back, you immediately have to go into writing again, mm. where you can, where you feel that like qualitatively you just can't. You can't do it. After Dagger Beach, I was just like, you know, I was just, I, I remember saying to myself, like, I have, there's no more conversation that I want to have with anyone, with myself, with my guitar, with my mini Moog. Like, I don't want to converse musically anymore. Like, mm. like, it, you know, I'd made 10 records in 11 years and, and, and I'd played 1100 shows. It was like, I had just like reached the limit of what I could do you know, at that point. So it was really a perfect storm of being creatively tapped out, but also these capitalist forces, yes. momentum, everything all sort of hit at once, it sounds like. Yes. And also remember that at that time, that's where a lot of like, you know, booking agents would say that like the bottom dropped out of touring, yeah. you know, and like, and, 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 you know, I talked to Adam recently. He was like, he's like, it's a fucking shit show out there. Like it's, it's like so much worse than when you stopped touring. Yeah. So, so I, 
produced a lot of records and I was ha- honestly I was kind of I was like whoa cool w- what a good time to not do this what a good time to stop and I, I really didn't feel I didn't pick up a guitar I you know what I started having friends I started ha- you know what I mean I started being like yeah. yeah like and I had already had a relationship that had died because of my touring yeah. so I was like you know what I want to be like a normal person I want to have friends and I want to stick around long enough actually be able to say oh, can I come over and see you next Friday and, and we'll watch a movie and we'll hang out and pet your dog or whatever you know so that was really really important and so then I did that and then my mom died and that was about two years ago. And when my mom died, you know, I grew up with a single mom. I was very – she was my best friend. I talked to my mom probably an average of every day for the – you know, I lived with my mom in college. I brought her up on stage 20, 25 times. She would seen me play like 50 times, you know. Like she pushed me into piano lessons. She was the only fan I had for a day. I, you know, I didn't get signed to Barsook until I was 31. So I spent my entire 20s making shit cassette tapes that only my brother and my mom would listen to. And my brother is too smart to bullshit me. You know what I mean? He was like, these are structurally you know, problematic songs. And my mom was like, I love you. Keep going. You know what I mean? Like, like she she was like the the fucking kerosene. Yeah. You know. So I'm sure she was an objective judge of your song yes, quality. Yes. At the oh, time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was fantastically <laughs> unobjective. So my mom died, and like this is a, a story that it's totally universal. She was the parent. That was it. Single mom, and I went fucking crazy. I mean, I went like into suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. like. As many hours that I was awake, it was like I need to drive my Corolla. You know, I was like, I'm going to bring a Sharpie into my Corolla. I'm going to write on the dash, sorry. I'm going to drive it up to the Golden Gate Bridge and I'm going to jump. And it was like I would have these thoughts for hours and hours. I mean, suicide. I didn't understand. Untethered. I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to leave the fucking planet. There was something about my mom dying that, like, I. She was like this hard drive of all the beautiful memories. She was like a repository for everything good about me. You, it sounds like you were in a pretty good and, and I was secure super, place. I was in a great place. I was great. I was like, I was happy. You, you I was, planted some roots down. Yes. And I had great friends. I wasn't in a, in a relationship at the time, but I was, ve- I, I was very, very happy. And one morning, my brother called me and he was crying and he said, mom's dead. And I was like, she's not dead. He's like, she's dead. My m- brother lived with my mom at the time. And I remember I was in West Sonoma camping, and I remember arguing with my brother. She's not dead. Was she sick? She no. She just had a heart attack. She just collapsed, had a heart attack, died. And I t- maybe talked to her an hour before she died. So there was, and there was no like. So for the first like, I remember hiking that day with friends, and I was crying. I was with really, really good friends. I was with all engineers from the studio, and we hiked. And I remember thinking, I can do this. I've been I've been afraid of my mom dying since I was four years old. So my mom was like, you know, we it was me and my brother, single mom. My mom worked, and my mom worked late. So my mom would be late all the time coming home, and we, you know, this was we were unsupervised. There wasn't babysitters. We were, we were in the dirty south. My mom was getting her car repossessed. I remember she would be late, and I would I would have to like count numbers just to allay the fears that my mom had died in a car accident. And the phone would ring and I'd be like, that's the fucking cops. I remember once we were pulled over and my they, I think that they thought my mom was, was drinking and they pulled my mom out of the car and a, and a cop came and talked to me and my brother and was like, hey, wh- how are you guys doing? And I was like, oh my God, 
this is my new father and they're taking my mom away. Like I lived this yep. like panicked, su- ultra neurotic separation anxiety like life forever. Do you know what I mean? I mean I worried about my mom dying from when – it was my earliest memory. So when my mom died, I had this like incredible sense of relief for the first like five or six hours. I was like the thing that I've dreaded my entire life has happened. I'm still breathing. I love my mom. She's not – no one dies. No one was ever alive. They we're all connected, all this LSD yeah. bullshit. Like I, I was like – I had this incredibly beautiful adult like – You're like, suddenly a Buddhist. I was – yes. <laughs> and that lasted for like 12 hours. And then after that, it's like someone took a fucking syringe and just shot it right into my brain. And then two years of total – fucking craziness how does that manifest itself like definitely suicidal ideation was the biggest problem and they so i went to my doctor i'm in medical in california and they immediately just they put you on some 1950s shit they they just turned me and you know what thank god Mm. my doctor dr nita she just turned me into a walking zombie. <laughs> like I, they gave me some shit from the 50s called Remeron and it was like I was taking like an eighth of a pill and I was barely able to like sustain sentences. I mean it was how like you, – But how do you like – I mean you can't process grief when you're on that. I could – I just didn't want to die. I mean I yeah. just I just didn't want to like – But aren't they delaying? I mean it's like a – you know you, you go to general hospital and like you're, there's 30 yeah. people in a waiting room and they got to get you – they just want to keep you like a shuffling. But you felt that that was a, a positive. I, I was so de- – I was so fucking lost, man. I mean, I could sleep. Do you know what I mean? Like that's I would yeah. I I slept, and that you know after weeks and weeks of not. It sleeping, was the getting up that was hard. Yeah, I was getting. <laughs> yeah. It was impossible. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to sleep like eighteen hours a day on yeah. this shit. So I got through the the first months were the worst. And the thing is, is that I don't. I didn't even know where this grief was coming from. Well, you've got this like this clarity, and you're able to be very sort of analytical about it yeah. now. But were you at the time? I, I mean, think you knew, I was. You knew where you were. I think I could have said all this stuff, yeah. but I think that the moment I would have left here, I would have had this unbelievable yeah. fucking dread vacuum just fill all the empty space. Like whenever I was alone or in my bed or – I couldn't even reflect on my mom without feeling like the, 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 the unbelievable guilt. And I don't, I don't know why. I don't, I don't really exactly understand. I do know that like – I started writing songs, I don't know, six months ago, and it it changed the relationship I had with the grief I was feeling about my mom because my mom and music were so linked for me that when I started writing songs, it felt like I could – it was the only way I, would, I could think about my mom again without feeling terrible or without feeling incredibly compromised as a person. So the process of making this record kind of like – pushed me through it. So I can think about my mom and I can have like real sadness that doesn't like cut cut me in, internally. Do you know what I mean? It's like healthy, normal grieving for that parent that got you on the fucking planet healthy. You know what I mean? Like my mom shielded me. She protected me. She was my best friend. And like now I, I've I just feel completely different about it. Sometimes you're telling a story of someone else, you know, like Life and Death and Porchak. Yeah. Do you feel that having gone through this in your life that the music is more direct? I think it's probably le- less direct. Less direct. I, th- I think that it – I couldn't incorporate it in a way that – it just wasn't valuable to me. Do you know what I mean? It felt like it was so much of what I was experiencing that it didn't It didn't feel like – sometimes songwriting is like is like a – 
there's a surprising narrative kind of delivery that has to be there. And and for me, the the the, the relational thing that I was having with just being sad was so boring. It was so boring. Like it was, it was so, cliche. Or... It was unbelievably mundane. Yeah. And it's uh, the Mount Erie shit. Like like death is real, and it's it's like I, I don't want to learn anything from this. Do you know what I mean? Like like I'm actually glad you brought up Mount Erie. That's a good example of you hear something like that, and you're like. Fuck! How can I say anything about this? Yes. This 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 album he wrote about his wife and that fuck that first line on that song, the way that, that hits you really helped me. Actually, yeah, it really helped me. It's that thing of just sort of like seeing what feels like a, a definitive work of art on a universal life experience, and what can you possibly yes. bring to that yes. conversation? So for me, the once I started writing, it became uh, important for me to start collaborating with people that mm. were going to push me into making a type of record that I've never made before. And that became more important than – I mean there's 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 like – there's like this leakage that happens like unconsciously with, with – whenever you're like that wounded, yeah. you're going to write some fucked up shit. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the narratives on the record are, are – they're, they're pretty messed up. I mean but that, <laughs> that's been going on. For a long time, so I mean, you're you're definitely working. You know, whenever you sure. write material, you're working something out. Did you have a, a definitive idea of what you wanted to be, or you just wanted to sort of work well, outside of your wheelhouse? I listened to probably eighty percent rap, and so for me, what I wanted to like, what I wanted to like address and bring into to, to my own music was this this commitment to a rhythmic linear rhythmic bed that is convincing that is possibly blurring the lines between program drum machines and real performance. You're starting from a, an aesthetic place. Yes. Yes, because I want I was I mean I'm I'm I I just wanted to I wanted to get away from uh playerly flourishes that I grew up with like in the indie rock idiom and get into more linear songwriting which yeah. is like possibly loopy but mostly i wanted to make drum machines and drummers one blurred confusing entity and i wanted to also i wanted to bring in like elements of like distortion and 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 kind of like fucked up fidelity that I that were that were that were like more committed than anything that I'd done before. The drum machine thing is really interesting hearing that coming from you because you know you're the analog guy, right? Yes. I've been doing the show for about five years and I, you were on pretty early in on the show. We went yeah. to Tiny Telephone for yeah. a, a video segment we were doing. You said something to me during the interview that comes up in conversations I have with musicians all the time about the downside of Pro Tools being yeah. not a fidelity thing, not an aural thing so much as giving you too much control, right? Yes. And like and yes. sort of I think you said like working on a kick drum, like, you know, yes. totally like blurred into oblivion. But so so I think of you and I think of you as being the analog guy. And I think of you as being the person who has this, this, this connection more so even than other musicians with these, these analog instruments. And yet here you are trying to blur the line between a human drummer and a drum machine. Yes, I know. It was, it was, a, and it was exciting to, to me to be in a completely different position. We tried to make a Pro Tools record on a tape machine, basically. I mean, that was was like really the uh, the idea that was pitched to me by Jamie Riotto and Rob Shelton, the two producers who are <laughs> fucking brilliant. What does that mean? Well, it's what what it ended up meaning, which was pretty funny and insane, is that they pitched out this thing called a multi clock. It's like basically sends out like a square wave, and it's a way of of like chaining a tape machine to CV instruments, like. Like really early synthesizers, like we have a modular Moog 3C, we have uh, ARP 2600s, you know, mini Moogs, 
ARP Odysseys, yeah. um, an 808. Just plugging the wires in and out. and Yes. And so you're chaining – like it's basically yeah. a pre-MIDI directive. So it's comically slow and inefficient and inexact. And in that – you know, it's almost like, like the errors that came out of that process yeah. were so thrilling. Like we'd have yeah. days of plugging in a bunch of bullshit and then nothing happening. And then we'd have days or moments where something something clicked and what was like – Two drum machines talking to each other and then, you know, three synthesizers getting different sequenced information talking to each other. Some kind of bed would happen that it was like, that's the coolest shit I've this ever This is – I mean when I hear people describe making electronic music in the earliest days, it's yes. that. Or we had Alan Ravenstein. Do you know him? No. Uh. Uh, he was uh, Per Ubu's oh, keyboard wow. player. Sick. And somebody who like cannot recreate – Yes. Any of that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Because in the early days, in the you know, in the in the seventies, or you know, even that uh, that George Harrison record, like the, yeah. you know, the first Beatles solo record, yes. is is the electronic music record. Yes. And it's just a guy fiddling around. Yes. And a lot of that, it's not even experimentation for the sake of experimentation. Maybe it is to some degree, but it's more people like trying to like we have these tools now. What do we do with yes. them? Yes. Yeah. And this yeah. was a way to sort of get back to that. Yes. It, it was. A, it's a science experiment almost. Abs- absolutely. And then when we combine those. C- sequences with drum a drummer accepting their fate that they were going to be pl- you know that they were going to be destroyed and and distressed into like oblivion with a drum machine sometimes we were it was really reckless you know we would just like if we heard something we liked we printed it and then we would like cut tape we would do whatever it took to handle the, and control this material on a tape machine so that was the 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 rule so it kind of in some ways it kept us they kept barriers up where we we couldn't really we couldn't it was chaos you know what i mean like yeah. we had to keep poking around until something happened We'd have days where nothing happened, then we'd have a, a day where we finished three songs, and so it was, so it was like it was just these bursts of like fumbling around in the dark. But then when we when we got something focused, it felt new to my own songwriting language, and it was like three. It was unbelievably thrilling. I mean, the, the I, I'm I, I mean, I can't wait for you to hear the record. I, I think it's really interesting, and I'm I'm stoked. It, it's almost, and we're like three days away from being done. You couldn't have just sat down in front of a microphone with a guitar. Yeah, I, I think. Record. Yeah, I, I, I think it would have just been a different record. I think that this was what was inspiring for me right now. I'm just in a different place musically. Yeah. Like I, my heroes are, they're just different heroes right now. My heroes in three years when I make another record, it might be Kraftwerk. I don't, or you know, it might be like Richard yeah. Dawson. I don't know, but but right now it's like Young Thug and. ASAP Mob and you know what I mean yeah. and and, and Milo and yeah. you know what I mean like and Death Grips were yeah. really big for me yeah. so when you're inspired by something I think the coolest thing because a lot of I would say that there's a lot of people in the engineering community that are hostile to rap they wouldn't be expressed in that way but I know that because I know all these engineers do you know what I mean I know like I know how they speak to them it's like prefabbed like instant music. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't understand how much actual tracking is happening in rap and and how complicated production is. When we were in California to interview you, however many years ago that was, it was we were doing a music episode of the show. Yeah. The other producer we talked to was Black Milk. So we went to Houston. Yeah. He's an amazing hip hop producer, but he was, you know, we we were sort of contrasting like going to to Tiny Telephone and then this this guy who was making like literally just making it in his bedroom. And I understand why if I'm somebody who has spent his entire life making music in a traditional way, why that's a threat to me. Yes, abs- and it makes sense. And then, But then you have something like Atrocity Exhibition, which is like one of the most 
beautifully produced you know yeah. rec- did he work do you know if if black milk worked on atrocity exhibition because that, because that is that is like a an incredibly well produced and I, I just think that it's like almost like engineers have like this knee jerk assumption that it's all sampled repurposed yeah. stuff where it's not that simple anymore you know there's more tra- there's more tracking and more session playing god if you even listen to stuff coming out of stone's throw studio it's funny that you guys were these like two completely contrasting ideas at the time yeah you sort of in some ways come around to that way of thinking yeah and and even like tyler's record or blonde yeah. like i mean you have like people or in, in the death groups that you've st- people going to like sunset sound and, and electric ladyland yeah. you you have people it's almost like everything's flipped yeah like these indie dudes are just like at yeah, home yeah. doing drum replacements yeah. and like all these rap uh, dudes are they're in t- studios and they want to be rock stars they want to be and they're and they're, they're they yeah. have budgets and because rap yeah. Is there's fucking money? You're working on the record. I know you've been planning this tour for a while now. Yeah. You've been reaching out to people yeah. to perform. It's interesting though that in, in a way you're doing what sounds like is possibly the most musically complex record you've ever done. Yes, and you're doing these incredibly stripped down shows. Yes. What? How does that work? To me, it's like almost funny because it's like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like I'm not. I because bands come in the studio all the time and they're like. We're, you know, you'll be producing them, or or they'll they'll be like in the studio, very very concerned with like what is if I make this decision, what does this mean for our live show? And I realized it didn't yeah. take me long to realize that bands are at an incredible disadvantage in the studio because they are forced to be very literal. They're like, oh, we have a bass player, so maybe there should be bass on this song. Do you sure. know what I mean? It's like we have a we have a, a, a violin player, so there should be. Vi- I, I kept noticing this thing where their solo artists were making just simply more interesting mm-hmm. records because they were. Like unhinged, they were they were not they weren't with this balanced kind of like set of musicians yeah. that had roles that were present and like oh I can play that you don't want that that one guy or gal standing on stage during that one song yes. not doing anything and because it, it it forces you yeah. into like and it forces you into like a, a squareness do you know what I mean it's like there's a, a kind of a joke at the studio where the when when a two guitar bass drum band comes into the studio it's death. It's like you just can't unless there's some polvo shit going on or some <laughs> – do you know what I mean? Unless it's like Captain Beefheart. It's like yeah, it's not – Minute it's, Man or something. Yes. It's <laughs> never going to be interesting. It can't be. And it's like the, the history of rock and roll will fucking crush you. So it's yeah. better that you have like, oh, we have like a French horn player, a vibe player, and then someone like steps on percussion on the ground. I'm like, sign me up. I just try to make a record that is the – most interesting record that I can make at the time. And then I just don't believe in clubs and bars. I don't believe in that system anymore. I don't I don't buy it. I don't I don't I don't believe in sound checking at four PM. A lot of the albums that are made in this studio are, are in some ways sort of impossible to, to recreate in that stripped down way because this is not a qualitative comment, but they're just built differently. They yes. don't have that they don't have that core that yes. you can break it down to. Yes. But the, these do. They do because they were written on an acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. even though we're, they were they're unrecognizable. Yeah. On on the the record, they they are comically uh, disconnected from these songs. I always think that if you have like a narrative, a melody line, and a chordal structure, that you can that you can make it happen. And for me, the only shows that I'll that I'll just for right now, I'll only play house shows because it it's like. <laughs> it's the most pleasant show. Have you been to a house show? They're the most pleasant oh, yeah. show. Have I, you been I, to the under any of the undertow shows before? I haven't been to out here. Like I went to school in Santa Cruz. I used to go to house shows all the oh, time. Oh yeah, I sort of came out here, and it's like yes, I'm sure they're there, but I've only been to one or two. Yeah, they're they're 
I mean, undertow is that's all they yeah. do, okay. and so they do. You know, they, they do caliphone or clap yeah. your hands or, or page of the line, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, they, they just have like an interestingly, it's like a curated group. Yeah. Of, on eight, they have rules. They start at eight. There's no opener, no amplification, and you know, you have it's forty to seventy people, mm. and that's it. So in general, the shows are sold out, and in general, it's in a small space. You know, you're within three feet of someone, and it's really about. Like communicating and talking and people asking you weird fucking questions. It's awesome. There you go. That was John Vanderslice. Always wonderful catching up with him. His new record, The Satyrs, is out April 5th on Native Cat Records. Thanks so much to him. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are many ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere where finer podcasts are found. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. And that's about it for this week. So stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 